Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1. You'll need a Bible to follow along. The guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. So if you need a Bible, get their attention. They'll give you one of those. It's marked for you at the book of Habakkuk. Keep that Bible. Bring it back with you next week. It's our gift to you. Habakkuk chapter 1. One of the many effects of sin is that it causes us to squeeze our perspective down to the size of our lives. That is, we can't see beyond our own circumstances to a larger picture. Whatever I'm going through at the moment is all that matters. We get so caught up in our problems and disappointments that our focus is entirely on here and now so that God and His plan are not a thought and have no effect on us. We're so immersed in what's going on around us, we fail to consider what God is doing. And since we don't see God at work in our circumstances, we conclude he's not at work at all. That's what Habakkuk does in his believing complaint to God that we saw last week. He says to God in verse 2, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Now, I noted last week that this is a believing complaint because it's born of what he knows and believes about God's character. That what's going on is contrary to what God is like, and so why is God allowing it to continue? In verse 3, he asks, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Now, in verse 5, then, it's God who speaks. And notice that the words of verses 5 through 11 are in quotation marks. And that's because those verses are God's reply to what Habakkuk has said. And God begins his answer with these words in verse 5. Look at the nations and watch. Now, when God says, look and watch, he's using the very same words that Habakkuk used back in verse 3. Verse 3, he said, why do you make me look and why do you tolerate wrongdoing? So God said in verse 5, now you look. And the word that's translated tolerate in verse 3 is the same Hebrew word that's translated watch in verse 5. So Habakkuk had said to God, why do you look and, and just watch? And now God says to Habakkuk, look and watch. Habakkuk said, why do you... Why do I have to look at all these problems around me? And why are you just sitting back and watching it? God says, now I want you to look and I want you to watch so that you see more than you do right now. So God says, now you look. Look at what? He says in verse 5, look at the nations. Now Habakkuk had been looking in verses 2 through 4 that we saw last week at his own nation, his own nation of Judah and how bad it has become. And he wonders why God is seemingly not doing anything. And God's answer is to take his gaze away from his own immediate circumstance in his own setting and look at something larger. Look at the nations. In verse 3, Habakkuk says to God, look at this. Look at what's going on right here, right now. And God says to Habakkuk in verse 5, look at that. Look beyond you. Instead of looking at only what's going on with you and assuming I'm doing nothing because it's not apparent to you, 
Instead, look at what I'm doing elsewhere that obviously shows that I'm at work. So God is calling Habakkuk to look beyond the lesser to the greater. To look beyond his immediate concerns to a larger picture. God's widening his perspective from what's going on in his life and his nation to what God is doing internationally, what God is doing in his world at large. Now, why should Habakkuk care what's going on with other nations when it's his that he's concerned with right here and right now? Well, it's because it is all connected, friends. The same God who is at work in the big stuff that we can see is also at work in the relatively smaller ways that we cannot see. This greater to the lesser perspective is what the psalmist had in mind when he wrote famously, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So notice he's looking at the big picture. He's looking at creation. And when I consider that, when I think about that, and then I bring it down to me and us, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them? You see, friends, if we are not people who contemplate the big stuff, then we'll remain mired in the relatively small stuff of our lives. And so the size of our vision will be reduced to the size of our lives. It's one reason that I am personally a consumer of news. (laughs) Even though it's usually bad, mostly bad. Because when I think of the word news, I think of it as an acronym for North, East, West, and South. And even though that's not what news means, it helps me to look beyond my little world to a larger world and remember that God is involved in every piece of it. And so today, as we continue the series that we began last week in the book of Habakkuk, we're going to look at the big picture of what God is doing and be reminded that our individual lives fit into that. Let's pray then and ask God to help us. Father, we're here as each week by your divine appointment. We thank you that you allowed us to be here, that you brought us safely here. The weather is your weather. You order the winds to blow. You order the seasons. Help me to remember that. Help us to remember that. Even when it happens on the Lord's Day and the gathering of your people, I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters who have made this effort to come now to praise you, to encourage one another, and now to look into the pages of your word and to be changed thereby. We ask you, Lord, to grant us our request, to indeed help us to see you, to to extol your character from your word, and may, may we conform our lives to that which you are. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, a large part of Habakkuk's concern is that there's violence everywhere. We saw that last week. Verse 2, I cry out to you violence, but you do not save. In verse 3, destruction and violence are before me. And now beginning in verse 5, God responds that he's going to solve the violence problem by sending some people to do violence. (laughs) That's his answer. In fact, if you look down in verse 9. He says, the people I'm going to send come intent on violence. And another part of the complaint is found in verse 4 that we saw last week. That your law, God, is paralyzed as a result of all that's going on in the nation. Your law is not being followed. 
And God in his response now says, in effect, okay, you all are not following the law. I'm going to send some people to destroy you who are, notice verse 7, who are a law to themselves. So your problem that you're complaining about is violence. I'm sending people to violence. Your problem that you're complaining about is the law is not being observed. I'm going to send you some people who see themselves as a law unto themselves. And in doing this and sending violence to punish violence and sending lawless people to judge their lawlessness, God is doing something with which Habakkuk is very familiar. God's invoking something called the lex talionis. It's Latin for the law of retaliation. It's familiar to us in another way that we see in Leviticus chapter 24. If anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured. So we know this simply as the eye eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law. Just as a, a quick aside... That lex talionis, the law of retaliation, was not designed to ensure that maximum punishment be exacted, but rather that no more than the maximum be carried out. That is, it was actually a protection in the legal system against excessive punishments. The punishment must fit the crime. But God is saying, I know what the crime is. Violence. You're not following the law. And now the punishment is going to be appropriate to that. The crimes that Habakkuk's people were committing were this violence and this lawbreaking. And God's answer is that he's going to punish them with violence at the hands of lawbreakers. Now, just who are these people that are going to perpetuate this violence in response to Habakkuk's cry for justice? Verse 6 tells us, I am raising up the Babylonians. The Babylonians? If you're Habakkuk, that's what you're saying. The Babylonians? You're going to use them to judge us? We're going to see next week that Habakkuk can't believe that that's the plan and he does not like it one bit. Now, of course, God knew that Habakkuk would not be pleased with God's answer. And that's why he says, in effect, in verse 5, if I were to tell you that the Babylonians were going to be the answer to your prayer, would you believe it? (laughs) No, I didn't think so. He says in verse 5, you'll be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And you won't believe it because you don't think it can happen that way. And you don't think it can happen that way because you have a false understanding of me, Habakkuk. Habakkuk had questioned God's apparent inactivity, but in fact, God was not inactive. God was executing a plan. And that's because of what I say in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. Where we see that history is his, that is God's story. That's why God says in verse 5, I'm going to do something. God is active in his world. He's not a passive bystander to what's going on, but he's an active participant. Though every human being was made by God in his image so that we all have a God awareness, whether we're Christians or not, everyone has an awareness of God. They were made to have that. But even though every person has that, our concept of God is tainted by the sin with which we all come into this world. 
We come into the world, as it were, with lenses that taint the way we see everything, including the way we see God. So even if our exam question God is accurate, our practical view of God very often is not. That is, if we're given an exam regarding God, we may be able to answer the questions correctly. Is God at work in his world? Most of us would answer yes, check. Is God doing something good in his world? Most of us would answer yes, check. We may answer correctly, but whether we really believe it in our hearts shows up, friends, in the stuff of life. When we get caught up in the things that are happening in our lives, we easily forget the right answers, the exam answers. And in turn, we operate on our practical, functional view of God. It may be the conception of God given by that great theologian, Bette Midler, who assures us that God is watching us from a distance. Though the Bible says he's not far from every one of us. It may be the conception of God given by those great theologians, the Allman Brothers. Lord, I was born a rambling man trying to make a living, doing the best I can. And when it's time for leaving, I hope you'll understand that I was born a rambling man. Can you see that? You could try that if you want. Stand before God and say, I don't know if you know. But I was born... In the back of a Greyhound bus on Highway 41, I was born a rambling man. Did you know that, God? But you see, the truth is history is his story. And all the details of history, including those of your life and my life, are part of the larger narrative that God is composing. But we relegate God to the outer edges of our thinking because sin distorts So that we think he's not active. Or if he is active, we don't like the way he acts. So the Bible says we don't naturally think about God. That humanity, even though they have a God awareness, even though we know about God, we don't naturally think about God. Romans chapter 1 says we do not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. And so, friends, a small view of life comes from a small view of God. And this small, dependent, inactive, so-called God is the one that many people functionally, practically believe in. And so I encourage you, as I encourage myself, to think about the God you believe in. Is it the God of the exam question? Or is it the God of your practical, functional God in the midst of your difficulties? The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way with regard to our view of God. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought most ought more earnestly to contend than for the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings. As the great, stupendous, yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah, men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. 
They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They'll allow him to be in his money house to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. But we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. And then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love, but it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. Which God do you believe in? In the midst of your stuff. Friends, God started history. God controls history. And God will end history. Listen to what God said of himself in the Bible. I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning. I make known how it's going to turn out before it starts. That's what he's saying. From ancient times, I make known what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. That is, God is in control of the grand sweep of history from beginning to end and everything in between. It's not just the big stuff but the smaller matters that make up the details of his larger story that he's in control of as well. And so God goes on to say, from the east, I summon a bird of prey. So as part of this grand sweep that I'm in control of from beginning to end, that includes having a bird do what I want it to do. Or I summon a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, I will bring about what I have planned. That will I do. Friends, history, the events of time, are all comprised of God's story. God is doing something. But in verse 5, God not only says, I'm going to do something. He says, in verse 5, I'm going to do it in your days. So I say in your outline that history is his story and history is now playing. His story is now on at the box office, as it were. Now, you've heard me warn about the dangers of looking for the spectacular in our lives. There's an approach to the Christian life that looks for so-called God moments. We'll sometimes say it was a God thing when something extraordinary to us happens. The connection between God and the extraordinary necessarily removes God from the ordinary. Do you hear that? Looking for God, especially in the extraordinary, necessarily means we don't see God in the ordinary. And here's the thing. The ordinary is really what life's made of. So if we don't see God in that, we're not seeing God in most of life. God is always at work, just not just in the spectacular, miraculous ways. Instead, he accomplishes his work through what we call providence. Now, what is that? It's God working 
His will through means. The means of people. The means of events that he is orchestrating. All of whom and all of which he's brought to a place and time to accomplish what he wants in that moment. So most often it just looks like life. So we don't attribute it to God and so we erroneously conclude God's not at work. When we relegate God to the miraculous, we fail to see him in providence. The Heidelberg Catechism. You all know what a catechism is? It's not just a Catholic thing. There are Protestant catechisms or Baptist catechisms. A catechism is just a learning device that's in question and answer format. And so the, the famous Westminster Catechism uh, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the famous answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563. Question number 27 is this. What is meant by the providence of God? Here's the answer. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. (laughs) And here's question 28, the follow-up. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? Here's the answer. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we may place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand, that without his will they cannot so much as move. When we demand that God work now, Now I need an answer. Now I want an answer. It means here, this friends, that we fail to see that he is currently at work. God is always at work. And he's not only always at work, he's always at work for our good, even in the bad things. But we want to see it and we want to see it now. But God's work in providence is often unnoticed If it's not intentionally looked for. This past week I read a blog post at the website of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. It said this. In the midst of difficulties it's often hard to pull back and ask God to give us eyes to see the specific shape of his tender care in a given day. The writer says here were some of the micro consolations that I had yesterday, some of the micro, some of the small consolations I had yesterday. He says, I learned that one of the servers at a coffee shop I often visit attends a Bible study at a nearby church led by one of my colleagues. A friend with a four-wheel drive vehicle picked me up after I was stranded near the coffee shop. I enjoyed the antics of our labradoodle. To each his own blessings. I enjoyed the antics of our labradoodle in the snow. I had a warm bed to sleep in. Do you see what he's doing? 
Those are not spectacular things, are they? But all of them are God things because God is active in all things. And in addition to seeing God's work in the small stuff, have you ever considered that God is at work in what does not happen to you? We don't thank God for what did not happen generally because, well, it didn't happen. But think about it. God is at work keeping what could happen from doing so if that thing is outside of his plan. That same blog entry counted among the author's blessings that, quote, God kept both my wife and my son safe as they drove separately in the midst of treacherous conditions associated with our first winter storm. We had the weather that we had today. And we're all here. Right? We're here because God is at work. And God's at work in even the things that didn't happen to us. So he's especially mindful of God's care because of the snowstorm. But you could consider that and extend that to every time you commute to work and you make it safely. You could extend it to every moment of every day that something bad does not happen to us. We make the mistake of believing that what we see, friends, is all there is. And in so doing, we live our lives as practical atheists. It's harsh, but that's true. If I live like all I see is all there is, then I'm living as if God is a non-factor. But God is constantly, providentially at work on all things, big and small. And he's bringing about his plan for his world and for our lives. No matter how black the hour, God is at work and what God is doing is on schedule. So history is his story. His story is now playing. Now, in your life. Third, his story is his script. God said to Habakkuk in verse 5, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Now, from that, we see that never in his wildest imagination could Habakkuk ever conceived that this would be the plan of God. God said, I'm raising up this ruthless nation and I'm going to use them as an instrument of judgment. Habakkuk would have never considered that to be the means that God is going to use. But this amazement arises from a misconception that we can determine how the sovereign God should run his universe. We're going to see next week that Habakkuk's reaction is, you can't do that. (laughs) You cannot use those losers to do your work. But he can and does use everyone and everything in his plan for his world and our lives. We're going to see next hour in From Self-Help to God's Help. That God uses people in situations that we don't like, and often especially people in situations we don't like, to accomplish his purpose in our lives. For the time that that person and thing are in your lives, God has them and it for his good reason and his good purpose. He, in effect, wrote them into your life. Because your life and my life is following his script. 
He wrote your script and my script without asking us. So God says through the prophet Isaiah, who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And, of course, the answer to all of those is no one. God is writing the script and and has written the script for you and for me, and he did it in his infinite wisdom. God's plan is not determined by anyone other than God. When the credits roll at the end of the drama, the movie that God is producing, the credits will all say God. Not determined by anyone other than God. God does all things according to the counsel of his own will. He does all things for his good pleasure. And he does not need to ask anyone's permission to carry it out. History is God's story. It's now playing. The script is his. He has written it and he's active in writing it. And finally, his story includes all actors. You see, friends, everybody works for God. Everybody works for God, even people who deny God and don't know that they're accomplishing God's purpose. They work for God, too. (laughs) That was certainly true of the Babylonians. God says, I'm going to use these people to accomplish my purpose. They didn't acknowledge the true and living God, but he used them to judge the people of Judah. And then he judged them for their wickedness. So God uses them to accomplish his purpose, and then God judges them for the evil that they did. In verse 11, down at the end of verse 11, God says that they are guilty people whose own strength is their God. The generation before Habakkuk, the Babylonians were just a small, scattered band of individuals. They were living in the delta region of the Euphrates River. They began to unite and organize, and almost overnight, they challenged the two strongest nations on earth for supremacy. They took the city of Babylon from the Assyrians in the year 611 B.C. They crushed Assyria and took her capital city, Nineveh, in 609 B.C., and they decimated the Egyptians in a famous battle in 605 B.C. But two generations later, just 70 years, Babylon was no longer in existence. God raised her up. God fulfilled his purposes. And God even chastised and crushed the very instrument that he used in his judgment of Judah in Babylon. Everybody works for God. When after millennia of promises and predictions regarding the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah, God the Son, Jesus Christ, came In fulfillment of each of those predictions and promises, notice the people that God used to accomplish that. He used a guy like Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, who considered himself to be a god. And Augustus issues a decree, the very decree that sent Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, where Jesus would be born, just as God had predicted hundreds of years before. They went to Bethlehem because of Augustus. But it was God using Augustus for his purpose. That's why the Bible says of the coming of Christ. When the time had fully come, God sent his son. 
Consider what God did through the centuries to prepare the world for the coming of his son. God raised and deposed nations. He moved cultures. He used individuals from Caesar in the palace in Rome to this impoverished couple in Nazareth, Joseph and Mary, all to put them in the right place at the right time because everybody works for God. Pharaoh had no idea that he was a major player in God's drama of redemption, but God used him to accomplish his purpose in the exodus of his people from Egypt. Herod had no idea that he too had been written into God's script when he ordered the death of the firstborn for each family in Israel. In our day, presidents and dictators and CEOs and managers and teachers and police officers and baristas and nannies and janitors and mechanics and old people and young people and smart people and dull people in all their situations and in every circumstance have no idea that they're playing a part in God's script. But the truth is, everybody works for God. I've told you the story of the devout elderly Christian lady who would every day open her window to pray to God and people on the street could, could hear her. One day she opened her window to pray to the Lord to ask him to provide her needs for the day. And a couple of boys decided to trick her, and so they went and got some food. They left it at her door. They knocked, and then they ran away. A few minutes later, the woman was at her window praising God for his provision. The boys down at the street yelled up at her, You crazy old woman. God didn't give you that food. We did. To which she responded, The devil may have brought it, but God sent it. Because God's using everybody. And God's story, friends, is playing in theaters everywhere. In every theater, in every city, in every home, in every heart. One preacher told the story of Donald Gray Barnhouse, an American pastor of a prominent church in Philadelphia, who in 1939 was asked to preach a series of meetings in Scotland. So he traveled to Europe with his family, and rather than expose his family to the grueling itinerary that had been established for him, his family stayed at a resort on the coast of France in a town called Normandy. At the close of August, Barnhouse finished one meeting, and then there was a week where there weren't any meetings scheduled. His next meeting would begin in September, and so he thought, here's an opportunity to spend a little time with the family. So he traveled by train to London. And in London, he boarded an airplane to fly across the English Channel to meet his family in Normandy. Just before he left, the official who was ready to stamp his passport asked him what his travel plans were. He said he was going to spend a few days with his family, and on Saturday he intended to fly back, travel back to Scotland, and resume his preaching schedule. That official looked at him and said, If you want to be in Belfast on Saturday, I strongly urge you not to go to France today. You see, at the time, Europe was in political turmoil. The storm clouds of war were on the horizon. It was the weekend when all was coming to a head. It was the very weekend when Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of England, gave his ultimatum to Adolf Hitler. But Barnhouse thought that he could visit his family and return before anyone waged war. So he boarded the plane and the official said, don't forget, I warned you. He enjoyed the few days of retreat with his family, but on Thursday of that week, word came over the radio there would be no more flights to England. War was imminent. 
Barnhouse was to continue his preaching, he's going to have to travel from Normandy to Paris, change planes, travel to the coast, catch a steamer, travel across the English Channel, and find a train that would take him to Scotland. And so he set out on his journey. While he traveled through the beautiful, lush countryside of France, France began to mobilize for war. In the Middle Ages, they had developed a system of warning towns of impending danger and assembling men for war, and that was still in place during those years just prior to World War II. It was a system of ringing bells. They called it the ringing of the toxin. When the toxin would ring, the men knew that they were to assemble and mobilize for war. That little train that Barnhouse boarded wound its way through every little village between Normandy and Paris. And on his way, bells were ringing throughout the countryside. Every train terminal was jammed with men with terror or grim determination on their faces, women and children weeping, knowing that in all probability some would not be returning. When he arrived in Paris, he found that it was the first night of blackout. All the lights were either out or hidden. He said it was an eerie sensation to walk through the streets of Paris when all was silent and black. The next day, he traveled to the coast and he found the steamers. They began to make their way across the English Channel. News came across the radio that Hitler had moved into Danzig and had begun to bomb. The captain of the steamer said, this is it. There's no turning back. Barnhouse landed at the White Close Cliffs of Dover, and he made his way to London. From London, he took a train, but while in London, he noted that thousands of children were already being evacuated from the city. Children were crying and screaming, mothers weeping, just like in France. The men were mobilizing for war. As he traveled across England, frequently they had to stop to allow truckloads of children and truckloads of would-be soldiers to pass. He arrived at his destination late Saturday night, just enough time to get a few hours of sleep before preaching the next morning. He made his way to the church. He arrived just before 11 in the morning, just as the service was getting started. 11 in the morning was the time that Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister, had chosen to address the nation. So this is going on at the same time. The church house was filled. The pastor thanked Barnhouse for being there, and he said, I pray that God will have something for all of these people, because the church will be full of lads who will never come back. As the service began, a note was slipped to the pastor and then on to Dr. Barnhouse. It read, no reply from Hitler. The prime minister has declared war. And that was the moment that Barnhouse began to speak. So picture the scene and put yourself in the place of a man who steps into the pulpit at the moment that war is declared, looking into the faces of many who will not return, looking into faces that are filled with anguish. What do you preach? He opened the scriptures and he read the words of Jesus. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. And then methodically, he recounted his journey from Normandy to Paris, across the Channel, and through England. He told of the toxin ringing and thousands mobilizing. Do not be troubled. He spoke of homes, million of them broken up. Do not be troubled. He spoke of thousands of children torn from their mothers whose cries represented the wail of their country. Do not be troubled. Men were going to die. Do not be troubled. 
How could he preach such a thing? How could Jesus say such a thing? They could say, do not be troubled. Because they understood the eternal truths that we see in the book of Habakkuk. We serve a God who is on his throne. We serve a God who has a plan for history. And he is accomplishing his purposes for those who are his own. Friends, it's one thing for us to talk about the sovereignty of God. It's another for us to actually believe it in the stuff of life. I challenge you in the face of all that's going on, whether international crisis or moral crisis, in the face of any personal crisis, do you truly believe? Do you truly put your trust in the God of the universe for whom history is his story? Whose story is now playing out in your life? Who has composed the script of his story and your story and my story and who has included everyone in that drama? That's the God that we must trust. That's the God that we must serve. Your take-home truth is this. The events of history are his story. It's a drama with acts that are precisely timed and scenes that include all as actors. Let's pray and ask our God to help us to trust who he truly is. Father, we thank you again for gathering us because it is you who has done so. And we're here without any knowledge of all that was avoided, calamity, danger, car accidents, any number of things that we didn't see because you protected us from them. So help me and help us to remember that, Lord, you're active every moment of every day. And therefore, to be people who overflow with thanksgiving to you. Understanding that in all of those moments, we are absolutely dependent on you for life and breath and everything else. And Lord, help us to not only understand that, but to delight in that, even in the midst of difficulty. Because we know that you use all things to bring yourself glory and to accomplish the good of your people. And so I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters in this room who are going through hardship right now. And Lord, I I ask you to help them to turn their gaze upward. To enlarge their vision so that the size of their vision is not reduced to the size of their circumstances. But rather that they see the God who controls the circumstances and is using those circumstances in ways that we could not fathom. Help us to rejoice in that, that we don't do the planning because you do it much better, infinitely better, because you see everything and the connections between everything that happens. So, God, we ask you to help us to not be people who simply mouth our trust in you, but who live our trust in you in the midst of the circumstances in which you have placed us. As a result of that, O Lord, strengthen us, grow us. Use us as lights in darkness because that is unknown to natural mankind. It requires a supernatural work of the spirit in the heart of the believer to open that heart, to open those eyes so that we see these realities about you. 
And Lord, when you do these things, we will give you the honor and the praise because you are the sovereign God who deserves it all. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.